Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Our guests today are, for the lack of a better word, critics, theatre critics. Michael Kushwara is the drama critic for the Associated Press, and Charles Isherwood, the chief theatre critic for Variety, at least has been, and is about to engage on a new direction, which we'll get into during our discussion today. Welcome to you both. Welcome. We, we, we've got you both here, and you, you write for, you've been writing for two different audiences. Mike, you're writing for the AP, which feeds information out to virtually every newspaper in the country and God knows how many internationally. Um, so it is the broadest possible audience. And Charles, you've been writing for the past number of years for Variety, which at least initially, was totally an industry newspaper, though now with the advent of the Internet and connections through Reuters, your your stuff is available more generally. My first question is very simply, Do you who do you write for? Are you writing for a particular audience, or, or are you simply writing based on what you think, regardless of what your readership might be looking for? Well, I do have to write for a particular audience because we're writing for newspaper readers, and I have to assume that they don't know that much about the theater. Or um, if they do know, I have to say what I want to say in in the briefest amount of time, in the shortest amount of time, because um, I don't know what papers are going to do with my articles. They can do whatever they want with them. But, Mike, how much of a limitation? Do you actually have a limitation of words, or can you write – or you're doing it – in order to make sure that your your main message gets across. There is no limitation on words, but uh, I've been doing this for 20 years now, and the articles have gotten shorter. When I started writing, they were about 800 words. Now we're down to either between 400 and 650 words. Newspapers are shrinking. It's, in, a, in a one way, I think it's kind of a dying business. People uh, don't read as much, or if they read, they want something fast. And when I write a review now these days, I better say what I want to say in the first couple paragraphs because uh, they may not read any further than that. And do you think that's a function of the MTV generation, the attention span, or for other uh, Partly, I think so. It's uh, people um, are quickly distracted. And let's face it, Broadway does not have the audience that it once had. In the old days, you could count on Time Magazine and Newsweek to have reviews every week of whatever opened on Broadway. Now you're lucky if you get into a roundup every couple weeks. Charles, did you have a specific directive when, when going to Variety to write? Well, I'm obviously writing for a less general readership. Um, subscribers to Variety are you know, engaged in one aspect of showbiz or another, or they're just passionately you know, interested in it. So you can sort of assume a generally more sophisticated you know, audience for your reviews, but at the same time, people who are you know, working in film are not necessarily huge theater fans, so uh, I have to keep it pretty general, and I generally do. Um, And in terms of length, I have a bit of freedom since I've been sort of my own editor. I'm also the theater editor, so that I can, uh, you know, go on at length when I want to, or be as succinct as I need to be. But you have an interesting responsibility or opportunity. You talk about the film people. In many cases, you're being read by people who may then decide to go out and pursue a property for film, to to pursue it in another avenue, or in some cases, television. Are you writing for a trade journal, or are you writing as Charles Isherwood, and this is what I think of the show? 
Well, we're sometimes encouraged to include certain aspects of uh, in a review that you wouldn't necessarily include in a general readership review, like the box office prospects or uh, you know any other life it might have in another form of media. But the truth is that for me, I think you really have to write uh, with a general reader in mind, and you know you you write for yourself in some sense. I mean, and you try to write in a way that's going to engage anybody who happens to pick up that review and read it. Um, so I don't, I don't keep those kind of considerations in the forefront of you know my mind when I'm reviewing. I'm just trying to keep the reader engaged and sort of analyze the show on you know any m- number of ways. So if you're writing for yourself, tell us each how you came to be theater critics and and what formed you, Mike. Where where did you start your career? Actually, I started by reading Variety as a kid. <laughs> I would they would I grew up in Laurel, Maryland, and they would get one copy of Variety in every week. And they would save it for me, and I would troop down on usually on a Friday. They didn't get it till Friday, and to, they would to, save to the it public for me. library. Is this no? This oh. is the local out of town newsstand. Oh, they would oh. get one copy, oh, oh. and that's where I, you know, picked up, you know, my interest in the theater. Also, reading the Sunday Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times. I think a lot of people start it that way, just by looking at the ads. I didn't see the shows. Um, but I lived in a suburb of Washington D.C., and every once in a while, if I could badger my parents, we'd go in to see a show that was trying out in Washington before it came to New York. And at that time, there was no Kennedy Center, so uh, the National Theater got everything. And David Merrick loved uh, to bring shows to the National because everything would sell out. And audiences in Washington are notoriously kind. And uh, even if the reviews <laughs> were Notoriously kind. kind. There's an interesting phrase. Even if the show would come to New York and die in a week, they'd always get a standing ovation in Washington. Mm. So that's what started. I mean, that piqued my interest. And then did you really go into journalism, or do you go into journalism well, simply I, as an excuse to, go, to, to, to write about or was, see theater? It was a combination of things. I think it's sort of journalism is kind of like show business. Timing is everything. And if you're in the right place at the right time. And I always had an interest in the theater when I came, and in newspapers. And when I came to the AP, um, they let me edit the theater critics reviews and stories. Were you hired in a different capacity? I was hired in a different capacity just to be an editor on their main editing desk, what they call their general desk. Uh But they knew I had an interest in the theater, so they would always give me the reviews, and I would faithfully go over the playbills, making sure every name was spelled correctly. And then when he left to go to the the, uh, Los Angeles Times, um, I applied for the job and got it. So who was it you replaced at the age? Jay Charbon. And Charles, how about yourself? Well, um, unlike Mike, I didn't actually start reading a variety at an unnaturally young age. Um, and uh, being a theater critic isn't really one of those professions that you dream about as a little boy, you know, like being a it is. prior. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the little boy or yes, girl, I, I assure that's you. True, but I'm I guess one of those people who started reading variety at age 12 as well. Mm-hmm. So, Gosh, I guess I'm the odd man out here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I can't say that at age, you know, 10 I was running around making sarcastic comments about the school production of Little Red Riding Hood or anything. uh, So it's really something that I, you know, sort of grew into simply out of a love of, you know, theater specifically, which I didn't really develop until, you know, I was in my 20s because I wasn't exposed to it. I grew up in the suburbs of California. But I was engaged with art at a very young age. I mean, I was a huge reader and, you know, passionate about movies. and, um, And also I just, I wrote a lot as a, as a kid, and these things just sort of coalesced somewhere in my uh, mid-twenties, and I started out working at a magazine in Los Angeles where I um, 
started writing a, a column about nightlife. And if you can write about nightlife in Los Angeles, you can pretty much <laughs> write about anything, I think. So, um, and then I began at Variety about 10 years ago. Same thing, I was essentially a, a copy editor to begin with, and then I began writing the Los Angeles Theater Reviews. And when the New York theater critic left at a certain point, they asked me to move to New York, and I did. Now, we've been using the word critic today. The dictionary defines critic in a couple different definitions. The first one is a person skilled in judging the qualities or merits of some class of things, especially of literary or artistic work. The second definition, one who judges captuously or with severity, one who <laughs> censures or finds fault. How do you define critic, either one of you? Charles? Well, I think for me, the critic, you know, the way I, I don't really define it. I mean, I just do it. But yeah. um, when I when I try to analyze it what, it, what it is that we do, I think you have to, you have to be a little bit of everything. You have to be a little bit of a scholar, um, a little bit of a cheerleader. Sometimes you have to be a scold. Um, it's a combination of things. Uh, you know, you have to be a reporter, too. It's, it's kind of complicated because it brings together various, you know, aspects of one's personality and also one's, you know, professional experience. Mike? It's odd because I think you have to be sometimes an emotional journalist, which is kind of a contradiction in terms because usually, especially at the AP, you have to be very even-handed when you do straight reporting. But when you do an opinion piece, you get to express your opinion. So I think emotion plays a lot of... Uh, plays a lot into the into my review sometimes if you know if there are certain actors that I like if I see a scene that moves me I'll respond to it um, and I try to intellectualize it or at least give some kind of brief description of why it affects me but uh, that's an important part of this too now certainly in the business that we're all in mm -hmm. you get to meet the people who create and produce the shows who star in the shows you get to know them outside of their workplace. How do you keep your personal feelings for a person separate from the professional assessment of, the, of their performance or their creation? In other words, if you know a certain producer, how do you keep what you think of that person separate from what you write as far as that particular show is? Well, I mean, that's just basics of, you know, having professional integrity. Um, uh -huh. But the truth is that I don't you know, socialize very much with people in the business because, uh, you know, it does become complicated. Even if intellectually you, you think you can sort of uh, step aside, you know, once you become, you know, friendly with somebody, I think that might be a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. um, and it's different with different people. I mean, for the most part, I don't do a lot of... Mike meets a lot more of these people because he does a lot of, uh, you know, features. But, you know, it, what's funny is that sometimes producers have a little more distance so that, you know, a writer or an actor, you know, you can give them ten wonderful reviews, but uh, if you give them one negative review, you know, <laughs> they'll never speak to you again. And producers, I think, have a little more distance sometimes. So I think for me it's a little bit easier to, you know, relate to the producers. Yeah, I think people think that we socialize a lot with actors and producers. I mean, I've interviewed them, but then it's part of my job. And usually I interview them before I review them. And so they don't know what I'm going to write. <laughs> and... Uh, I try, and usually a lot of them don't, they all claim, and I don't know if this is true, a lot of them claim anyway that they never read reviews. So um, I'm hopeful that if I give them a bad review, 
but they don't read it. Uh, and I've never had anybody say, no, I don't want to be inter- you know, interviewed by you because you gave me a bad review you know, four or five years ago. Now, let's say you write an absolutely scathing review of a show, mm-hmm. and in it you have two or three good words about it was really wonderful whatever, and in an ad somebody pulls out the words really wonderful. How do you feel about that later, seeing your words perhaps misused in an ad? I think that's only happened maybe once or twice, and usually we call them on it, I mean, because it's just so blatant. But most ads, you think, are fairly realistic as to what the the tone of the overall review was, as opposed to just isolating one good paragraph, let's say? Oh, no. No. They shamelessly. They They, they will pull whatever they can. Uh, Yeah, but, you know, if they are quoting your verbatim, um, there's really not, I think, much you can do. It's just uh, they take away all the context in that, obviously. Yes, context is everything. And the careful use of the ellipsis or dot, dot, dot is an art and well-known to producers So if you're if you're basically panning a show, then you want to be careful not to say anything good because that one good sentence may get taken out of context. Is that right? I think so. And I I don't think people pay that much attention to quotes in an ad. We do. The Uh producers do. But the general public... They'll just see the ad. I think they go more for the visual. What does the ad look like? They're uh-huh. not going to say, oh, the greatest musical since sliced bread. I don't think that'll uh, encourage people to see it. They want to see it either from, you know, they've heard word of mouth, I think, mm-hmm. is much more important. Well, yeah, and the quotes have become so debased because, yes. you know, in, in movie ads, you know, even the most widely panned movie will have a whole string of, you know, quotes from People, people one never has never heard of. Heard of. <laughs> and, you know, so I think I think the public does take it with a grain of salt. So the average reader would, would uh, believe your review far more than the ads surrounding that review, let's say. I would think so. How much do you hear from readers? Now, again, in the case of Variety, it's more of an industry publication, so it's a smaller pool. But do you, do you have communication? Do people write you and say, why did you think this? Why did you say that? Or why didn't you think this? Rarely. It's surprising. I Every once in a while I'll get a, a an email from someone or I'll get a phone call from uh, – once I got a phone call from the father of a little kid who I didn't think was very good in a production of MAME, which I won't go into. <laughs> uh, but, uh, How malicious. Yes. Uh, so um, – but surprisingly few. I don't think that people are not quite sure what the Associated Press is, and they don't know who to write unless they send it to their local newspaper, which then forwards it on to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, I'm not that easily accessible. <laughs> so with that in mind, you don't necessarily spend time with the people you're writing about. You're not necessarily hearing from uh, the people who are reading you. How much do critics talk to each other? And how much do critics read each other to see what each other is saying? Well, I think most of us do read yes. read each other. And uh, and we definitely talk to each other about shows, but certainly not. You know, you don't run out as soon as the show's over and start uh, blabbing your opinion to everyone, you know, within uh, speaking distance. So, I, you know, I think it's important to sort of, you know, process it yourself, uh, you know, write the review. And then once the, once the reviews have appeared, you know, you want to... Sometimes you, you talk about them in the general reception that a show's gotten. But uh, but how about when you're at a show on a press night, a press night being before the opening right. of the show, the press is over two or three nights invited to review that show. You see your colleagues, your your counterparts at other publications in the audience. You like give each other quizzical looks like, oh, my God, or, wow, this is great. I mean, do you, do you <laughs> get, get that sort of interplay between yourselves or you just keep a, a straight face the whole time? Oh, I think there's been a, an occasional raised eyebrow between critics, uh, <laughs> yeah. something that's particularly awful. 
Um, but it's sort of a delayed reaction. Usually we will talk about the show we saw two or three days ago, yeah. not the show we're seeing that night. So there's sort of that professional yes, distance. Yes. You're okay. But you can see if the critic across the aisle from you is yawning. Uh, true. <laughs> that is a certain giveaway. But then you can also right. tell if the audi- other audience members are falling asleep, too. Right. So, And how much, when you talk about the audience members, how much in your writing do you take into account what you sense going on around you? Does the audience having a good time, or napping for that matter, affect what you write? Well, you can't really let it, because we, as you said, we go to press previews. So there are designated performances, and uh, it's no secret that, you know, producers and press agents will invite, uh, shall we say, a friendly audience on those nights. So you really have to tune it out. And it's it's amazing. I mean, sometimes you'll go to a show that is just dying up on stage, and the audience will be, you know, laughing hysterically. And, you know, it's it's so patently false, I think it actually works against the show, which is why I'm sometimes surprised that producers still do it, because if anything, you know, that kind of obviously exaggerated reaction just sort of sets your, you know, you set your teeth on edge. It doesn't benefit anyone. Do you ever go back to another performance before you write your review to see how a general audience is accepting it rather than this so-called stacked audience, shall we say? I'm trying to think if I have or not. I'm not. We don't, don't really have, have time, time to do that, really, yeah. because we have to it's write. On to the next because sometimes you, you don't want to see window. the show again. Uh, yeah. And a press night is usually a very unnatural night. Every the the, uh, the actors know they have to be good, and um, the audience is stacked, as Charles says, with you know usually with a lot of theater people. And in in some, one respect, I think we critics are kind of spoiled. Usually, when we go, it's a very theater savvy audience. They're there because they want to see the show or they've been invited to see the show by the producer. Uh, if you go into see a show like two or three years into the run or even, you know, four or five months into a run, you're going to get an average, you know, audience that may come in late. Uh, the cell phones will go off. Well, and you're um, lucky if the, all the stars are in and the you, show. And that's another problem, too. Under At studies, least we get you know, to, you know, see the stars. We see everybody, you know, who's, you know, assigned to the roles. Well, that's an interesting question. Now, you've been doing this for 20 years, yeah. and Charles, how long have you been a theater reviewer? Oh, about eight years. Eight have you years. seen over that 20 years a change in the theater in general in terms of the stars being in the show, missing shows, doing doing movie commitments, that kind of stuff. Is, is it the same now as it was 10, 20 years ago? Or are they out of the show more often, do you think? Oh, I think they're out of the show more often. I can't give you any, you know, scientific evidence. No, but just that they gut are, feeling. Just my gut feeling is that people are out more. They have... Let's face it, you can't make a living on Broadway anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to have a movie career. You have to have a TV career. You have to have a commercial career. Um, so you do the Boston Pops. You do concerts. You do whatever gig you can get up. And also, uh, a lot of people have written into their contracts. You know, they have they take all their vacation days. They take, you know, personal days. I remember once, not that long ago, an actor missed a show because his dog was sick. Mm-hmm. And the, I, a producer called me just outraged, you know, that, my goodness, you know, in the old days, would Mary Martin or Carol Channing not go on because Fido, you know, mm-hmm. had a tummy ache or something? No. I but, mean, but, but today. It's interesting. You say a producer called you. Is the producer of that show? Uh-huh. No. Oh, <laughs> that's another <laughs> they thing. Weren't, they weren't playing it out in the no, press. No, 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 they were not. Uh, you, you, but but some but some other producer was yes. quick to point it out. Yes. Do you get, do you get played by by producers? Do they try to do that? Do they use you as tools? I think so. I, it's easy. You know, you can't get producers to talk about their own show. Usually, usually they'll talk about somebody else's show. Mm-hmm. At least, 
but always off the record. That's another bane of my existence. Yeah. Usually at the AP, we have to report things police said or we have to mm-hmm. give a name. We can't use anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to do what now passes for theater reporting, you know, gossip. And how much does that gossip play in, not just that specifically, but but there's been a lot in the past few years about how the Internet and and the awareness of what's out there, the time frame in which people become aware you can go on some of these websites, the day a show has its first preview and there have been 15 people there who are writing about that. Does that impact not what you write, but more importantly, has it, has it impacted the kind of discourse about theater? Well, I think it actually has because uh, sometimes – you know, a story will begin to gain a certain amount of traction, you know, in the press because of what the chatter that's going on on the websites. And that becomes such a, you know, important part of the event that you can't really ignore it, even in the context of a review. I mean, you, you know, ideally you want to go in and judge the show merely on what is taking place on that stage, you know, in, in a given period of time. And of course, essentially you do do that, if, you know, as much as you can. But when you're writing the review, um, as I say, sometimes we're reporters too, and we have to include the. F- you know, sometimes you will make mention of the fact that you know word has been dire on this show, but what's on stage is you know merely terrible or something. Um, <laughs> that's pretty rare, though. It happens once or twice a season when you know a star will be missing a lot of previews, and it'll get a lot of attention in the press, and then you feel like that has to be acknowledged when you write the review or when you're assessing the performance. But it's not more than once or twice a season that, you know, I mean, we should be so lucky that Broadway news would be, you know, (laughs) a big deal. But has it also, has it simply changed not the content so much, but the timeliness of news and reporting has changed so much because anything that happens can be out to, to an audience so immediately, uh, variety, there is daily variety, there's weekly variety. Certainly the AP has a constant feed, but now you do have these websites who can get stuff up there so quickly. Has that changed the way uh, your publications or other publications that you're aware of have have chosen to, to report about theater? Have they had to be more responsive? Have they been lapped by these these websites that can that can just do stuff instantly? whoever they may be doing them. I think in a way they have. Um, I remember as a kid when I used to go down to get Variety on Friday, I'd always buy the Philadelphia papers too if a show was trying out. Two days later, you, you wouldn't even get the next day. You'd have to wait for two days and you could find what the reviews were for a new show. Right, trying and Variety out. was a Wednesday publication, publication in those yes. days. So you would be like a two-day lag time there. And that would be for certain people who actually would make a trip to a newsstand to buy it. Nowadays, you can open a show in Seattle you know, Nome, Alaska, you know, San Diego, whatever, and literally, you know, within minutes of the curtain going down, you may have someone, you know, typing away on the Internet. In fact, today I was looking at TalkingBroadway.com, and there, I think it's the first preview of Bat Boy in London, and there was some guy on saying, I will file my review overnight. Whoever Whoever it may may be. be. Whoever he may be. Will you know? It could be, be the a, press agent for Bat Boy in London, yes. or it could be somebody seeing the show. Yeah. So, so instantaneously, you get instantaneous opinion. How, how much effect do you think you guys, in general, not just the two of you, but the critics in general, have on the the, the life and death of a show? In the old days, bad critical reviews could kill a show. As it was said. Nowadays, you see many shows that are really probably not very good that go on for a long, long time. Other shows that may be wonderful shows that 
last a very short amount of time by comparison. Do you think people pay attention to critics nowadays, or is just the whole media thing so generalized? They see people appearing on television, they hear the music on the radio, that sort of thing, that they tend to disregard the critics more than perhaps 20, 30 years ago they would, would have. Well, I think critics don't have the influence they once did because it, we're not a reading culture the way we once were. Um, and uh, and it also varies. Producers now have all these ways of, you know, marketing their shows around reviews. Um, you know, that's why I think we see so many, uh, you know, movie and TV stars on Broadway because it's a way of essentially neutralizing the critics. You know that even if your show gets, a, you know, bad review or worse, you've still got... Uh, you know, a big name, and that's money in the bank these days. Um, so I think I think that you know they're, they're, we're probably less influential, but um, you know, I, it's not like I lose sleep over it at night. <laughs> Audiences pay attention to the stars. I think you have a Hugh Jackman or a Sean Combs. These are guys that people wanted to see, and even though the reviews for both shows, Boy from Oz or A Raisin in the Sun, were not the greatest, audiences flocked to those shows. Not the greatest. Well, some of them were quite terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how about shows have been running a long time where every couple months a new name, celebrity star is put into the show. People come to see that. What, what do you think about that practice? Is that it's a good depressing. thing? It's um, depressing. Well, you know, it varies. I mean, certainly there are some performers who surprise you uh, and uh, others who don't surprise you. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of, you know, second second-tier TV stars who seem to, you know, be channeled through some of the longer-running shows that, uh, you know, it just gets a little bit... What gets dispiriting is the thought that, um, you know, talented performers are not getting the chance to break through the way they once did in uh, significant Broadway roles because whenever it's time to replace star number A instead of, you know, the girl from the chorus... You know, they import another TV. It's not Shirley MacLaine coming right, up right. for Carol Haney. Yeah. But the argument could be made that it's keeping Broadway theaters lit up rather than dark. It's employing people, keeping all those dancers and musicians employed. So it's not altogether a bad thing. I mean, you could look at it that way. That's true. It may not be encouraging new production as much as in the old days, but at the same time, you walk through Times Square an hour before showtime, it's packed, and that's just with p- people you know looking up at the neon signs or going into the theaters. You have to remember that it is show business, and the, you know, the name of the game is to get bodies in the seats. It's and business. It, it is business, <laughs> and if Wayne Brady can sell tickets to Chicago, put him in the show. But we're talking right now about commercial theater. We've essentially mm-hmm. been focusing on that, and I'm curious: do has that infiltrated the not-for-profit world? We certainly have not-for-profits on Broadway now. We have a large number of off-Broadway not-for-profits, and then we have regional theaters around the country. How much do you get to see that work, and do you think that work is being affected by that same mentality? Well, I think it's definitely infected the nonprofits here in New York because they they do have Broadway houses and they have uh, you know a lot of subscribers they need to sell a lot of tickets and you know they're they're out there casting stars just as much as anybody else is sometimes um and that you know that's unfortunate but they have you know their boards to answer to too i think so you look at uh, i think the uh, nonprofits out of town have sort of become the the new new haven and philadelphia and boston you have all these big musicals trying out at uh, the old globe in San Diego, Seattle, you have uh, the Color Purple opening at the Alliance in September. These are, you know, nonprofit theaters that usually do serious work, and not that these 
shows are not serious works. They, you know, some of them most likely are, but they're being used as venues to sort of incubate, you know, shows that hopefully will eventually get to Broadway. Now, the name of this radio station is On Broadway, using the term uh, mm-hmm. relating to New York City. But we're very conscious that theater exists on the other side of the Hudson River. And Howard, representing the American Theater Wing, is ex- su- supremely conscious of this. How much do you guys do beyond New York City shows? Do you review shows on a national basis? I think it depends on the show and on how big the name is. Mm-hmm. If Arthur Miller opens a new play in Chicago in October, everybody will be there. If Stephen Sondheim opens a show in Chicago or Washington, we'll go. It just depends. But, you know, you raised something very interesting. You're talking about Mm -hmm. the the new New Havens, the new Philadelphias, and everybody will go. Has theater in this this shrinking of, of the speed of communication and the ease of travel, has that affected the ability of shows to develop? There's certainly this issue of... Some of these shows out of town actively try to say, please don't come. Now, Variety has always covered those shows. If they Mm -hmm. open, if people are paying for tickets, Variety goes and sees it. But has the world shrunk and has that deprived theater of an opportunity to develop its work since it's it's not a film that can be worked on in a fixed way and test marketed in the same way uh, in front of audiences? Uh, Yeah, I think it is definitely, you know, that's evolving. Because uh, once upon a time, you know, as Mike said, you could go out of town and the national critics would not cover your show and you could fix and fix and fix and, you know, work on it for several months before it was really judged, uh, you know, as a final product. And that's really not the case anymore. If you put up a show, you know, at any one of the major regional theaters, uh, essentially you're expected, you know, you're going to, that, that's, that's the musical, that's the show that's coming into New York and people judge it as as such, you know, people, you always assume that, you know, changes are going to be made, tweaks are going to be done, but uh, I think it's a lot harder now for producers to to develop shows, you know, outside, you know, the glare of the uh, media spotlight. Well, what is the general uh, way that producers nowadays develop shows then? Do they, do they do focus group testing, that sort of thing, or do they use any research well, methods? Well, the workshop is workshop. where, you know. Workshop is. Uh, explain what a workshop is. Well, they put people together in a room and have a reading, or maybe even more elaborate than that. They'll have, you know, a minimal set, maybe even costumes. Who are the people they put together? Uh, these are actors who are hired to, right. you know, they, who have no guarantee whether they're going to, you know, can go on with the show. And then who's sitting there watching them? This is, you know, the creative team, maybe uh-huh. backers. Sometimes they people use People are trying to get... Yes, the, it's the, a glorified the, the idea, backers audition. What, what used to be called a backers audition yes. has now metamorphosed into these workshops. But You but, guys, they try to keep yes. pretty much out of them. Though I do want to ask, Mike, because you've got an interesting situation. You've tracked a show that's coming to Broadway this year mm-hmm. that you saw in earlier incarnation. You will not be reviewing it. That's correct. That's a turnabout. There's a musical called Brooklyn, which started out in Denver. How did you make the choice to do that, that's that's where you chose to be a reporter rather than a critic. Well, we wanted to track a show, and uh, we thought that Brooklyn might be a good idea. It seemed to be a small musical that would be easily accessible, and theoretically it was coming in. This was a year ago, and it's finally making its way to New York, which actually, in the great scheme of things, is not all that long, because sometimes musicals take forever to get here, and this one had its out-of-town tryout basically a year ago, or maybe a little, maybe April of 
2003 and is finally coming to New York. But since I've gotten, this is a show where I really have met the entire creative team. I've met the actors. I've met the producers. I've seen the prospectus. I've seen the financials. So to review this, I think, would be a little unfair. You have to kind of keep a a distance from that, obviously. I want to come around. We've been talking about kind of the business operations what do you all, if you, it's almost impossible to say after you've been seeing as much theater as you do on a regular basis, when, if you were able to just say, I'd like to go see some things, what do you personally like to go see? What kind of theater do you look for and say, this is what I most enjoy? Charles? Well, I think, well, what I think is lacking these days, I think what I miss most is really interesting new plays and interesting new voices. Um, uh, because that's actually what we don't see much of, and that's what I am always looking for. Because, you know, increasingly Broadway, uh, you, you will always get a certain amount of new musicals, but you've got a lot of revivals, and um, it's more rare these days that you see new plays produced on Broadway. Um, and frankly, the ones that you see produced there are not always... <laughs> Not always, uh, you know, inspiring. But um, so that's what I mean. I mean, I like to see good theater of any kind. But um, what I'm really keep hoping for is, you know, a really exciting new playwright to discover. Well, we should say, we haven't said, and Mike will come back to you, um, we alluded, Charles, to the fact that you are going to, to a new assignment. I don't believe we've actually said that you will be joining the reviewing the critical staff of the New York Times uh, by the time this interview is aired. That gives you probably the single most prominent bully pulpit in theater to write for that publication. Are there people, are there writers that you you want to see more attention given to? Do you think you're going to have the opportunity to, to do that in, in your new gig? Well, actually, that's one thing I'm really looking forward to. I will not be covering most of the Broadway because the chief critic, Ben Brantley, will be doing that. And in some sense, that may be a relief, um, given that last season on Broadway was not one for the books. Um, and that is something that I'm looking forward to to doing is maybe, you know, being able to seek out the, the smaller shows, the, the new names, and, you know, uh, assuming that there's something to cheer about, um, you know, give them a fighting chance. I think it's very hard for young writers to even embark on a theatrical career these days because, um, you know, there's not a lot of money and there's not a lot of attention paid, so... Will you then be able to go to a Broadway show, which you're not reviewing, just sit back and enjoy it as an average theater goer? Yes. Or will you always have your critics head on whether you're writing about it or not? In other words, can you just relax and enjoy a show, having been a critic all these years? Well, I will still be going to all the Broadway shows and hopefully finding you know some, some manner of writing about them. Um, I look forward to doing that, too. But, uh, yeah, there's something to be said for not having to you know crank out the review the next morning that you know is going to be, you know... Right on. You know, it'll take a load off my mind on occasion, I think. <laughs> now, Mike, the kind of theater that you like to go to, are there things you particularly enjoy? I think you look for a writer with a distinctive voice. You have people like Mamet, August Wilson. When you hear their dialogue, you know who's writing that stuff. Yeah, that's what I look for, people who surprise me that don't sound like a faux Sondheim or a faux Arthur Miller. I mean, people who... Or a faux re- mammoth. There's or a, a faux mammoth, <laughs> yes. There's a lot of those around, too. Sometimes I think poor Sondheim has been imitated more than anybody else, and we've suffered through a lot of those kind of musicals. But you, you look for something new. Or an old writer who tries something new. You have to give them credit for at least for trying something. Now, how many shows a week or a month do you think each of you go to, each of you attend? And then I'm going to follow up with another thought. 
it depends on how busy the season well, is, in right? In general. In general, I would say two or three, you know, when the season gets going, and sometimes more, if mm-hmm. especially if it's crunch time like April right before the Tony deadline. Right. I'm sorry, how many per month? or well, per week, per month. Well, you know, if you include off-Broadway and Broadway, mm-hmm. it's it's two, at least two a week, two or three a week, I think. I mean, so, I think, Mike, if you look back at all the reviews you've written over the past 52 weeks, you'd probably be... Uh, so you see well over 100 shows a year. Yeah, yeah. Easily. But, do, but do, you, do, you, do you ever sit there and think, boy, I could do better than that? And then are you ever tempted to say, hang up my critic's hat, I'm going to write a show? Any... No, Dead I mean, silence. Head well, <laughs> you know, that's a, you know, I think that's a fallacy. The idea that you know a lot of critics are people who really, you know, secretly want to be writing, uh, you know, musicals or performing. I, you know, rarely do I. Uh, that, that just doesn't occur to me. I often wanted to be a producer more than a than a writer. I think uh-huh. that's what they need more today. I think they need good producers, producers who know how to get a show up and one that can make money, hmm. which is, I think, a real art. Now, you've both been chief critics, Charles. You're now going going to be in the second position at the Times. Do you find yourself with your own biases, Mike? Are there times where you just say, you know, something? I can't go see this. I'm giving this to the number two, Charles. Has that been a situation for you at Variety, um, or in this case now, may there be there? You may be in the situation where where Ben says, you know, I'm really just not looking for this one. Does does that come into play? Do you think that way before you go to shows? Sure. But I'm not going to tell you what shows I really We wouldn't ask. <laughs> we're, we're, we're looking to support theater. We're yes. not looking to tear anybody down. We all have our biases. Well, yeah, yeah. And there's always a few that you're happier to unload than others. Yeah. And now I will be the one who's unloaded upon, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and do you find yourself um, going back at ever looking back at reviews you read a year, two years, even 10 or 20 years later, do you find your perspective on shows changes and that you wish you'd written differently, positively or negatively, um, over time? Is there anything you've looked at, say, that you didn't like initially and come around to saying, you know, that really was pretty interesting. I just wasn't there yet. Well, actually, I was thinking about this the other day. It happens very rarely, but very often we get to review shows off-Broadway, and then, you know, when they get good reviews, they will move to Broadway and we'll review them again. And one occasion where I thought that my first review was a little under-enthusiastic was um, the Susan Laurie Parks play Top Dog, Underdog, which when it moved to Broadway and had a a new actor in it, I I found much more engaging and exciting as a piece of writing than I had found it off-Broadway. And, of course, you know, that... Gives you pause a little bit, but I think that's inevitable. I mean, do you think it was your frame of mind? Was it what you had for dinner, or just? Uh... Well, it, it's a combination of things. I mean, obviously, you know, we're human beings, subject to all sorts of you know specific <laughs> ailments and whatnot. Um, so, and you're going, you're seeing a show once, you get one shot at it. So, um, there are times when you know maybe you're not in the right frame of mind to appreciate a particular show. Yeah, so. we say you get one shot, but you could go back a second time perhaps and delay your review a day or so just to see, maybe I didn't see that right. I want to see that again. Could well, you do I've done that? that on one or two occasions. Uh-huh. Um, and frankly, I mean, this season I did it with Carolina Change. I, I went to the very first press preview, and, and I wasn't terribly moved by the show. And But I thought it was an interesting show and obviously a very smartly put-together show, so I actually went back two days later, you know, after having written my review, but it hadn't been published yet. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, my my responses were exactly the same. 
But we just don't have the luxury of doing that. I mean, in an ideal world, it would be nice to see things twice, especially, you know, a sophisticated musical or a, you know, or a Tom Stoppard play, God knows. You'd like to have <laughs> more than one shot. And it can work the other way, too, something you may have found quite intriguing off-Broadway. When it moves to Broadway, all of a sudden you notice things that you didn't see before, flaws or imperfections that suddenly are magnified on a bigger stage. And that's happened, too. Yeah, that, I think that probably happens more frequently. Yeah. On the new work, have you read these shows? Are you given the opportunity to read the script before you go and see them, or are you seeing them cold the way an audience member would, or do you get, grab a script afterwards? Because in many cases, on the new work, it's not generally published. Certainly the public can't do that. Usually we get scripts at the press performance. We don't read them beforehand. And sometimes not after, I mean. Really? You know, what you are reviewing is the experience mm -hmm. of the, the whole experience of the show, and a play can be very different on paper. Um, but, uh, but no, it is very helpful to have the, the script on hand, and, you know, the more interesting plays, certainly you really, you really want to have some, something to refer to. Now, you as individuals, or you as a group, a, a community of critics, uh, you write a review. You make some critical suggestions, shall we call them. Do you ever find that the producers, the directors, the actors take your suggestions and make those changes in the show? Or do they just kind of ignore you and go on as they've been doing? In other words, if you say, well, gee, it would, this really bothered me with the show, do they go back and then fix it? Or is it too late to be fixed at that point? I think it may be too late by then. I've yeah. never had anybody come back. and uh, Plus, I've never gone back to see a show to see if they've taken my uh -huh. suggestions. Well, Variety had once had a very important function in that regard. I mean, because so many shows used to try out all over the place, the Variety critics would sometimes be the first ones to get a crack. And to a certain degree, that's still the case. I mean, so we have stringers all over the country who, um, you know, are sometimes the first, you know, among the first people to write about a show. And, you know, I think some of them do have some influence. Yeah, again, this is it's a change from, from the old out-of-town situation. I mean, the stories are kind of legendary about Kevin Kelly, who for many years was at the Boston Globe, mm -hmm. and was said he would actually, you know, go and sit and chat with Michael Bennett if Michael Bennett had a show out of town. But that, again, the dynamic is, has really changed. Well, from your perspectives, Mike, in your case, 20 years, you, um, Charles, the, the better part of a decade, shall we say, mm -hmm. seeing theater, seeing a lot of theater, how have you seen it change, and where do you see it evolving to now, without you know naming names and that sort of thing? But are we going in, in a good direction, a bad direction? What, what, what do you think about theater as it's been developing? Or where'd you like, and, would you like to see it Where would you like going? to see it going? Or whether we, you would like to, or where do you think it is going? Well, if, if you're talking about Broadway, I think Broadway has become more of an event type of entertainment. Uh -huh. You go once a year. You go on a birthday. You go Christmas, Easter, or whatever. And so it's it's become about the big show. I don't think you go to Broadway to discover new writers or to see new talent. You, you go say off you, you mean the, the general public? Yeah, yeah, the general public, yeah. So in that respect, it's it's become almost kind of a luxury. It's uh, it's expensive, mm -hmm. $100 a ticket. If you have kids, you know, that's 400 bucks or whatever to see a show. So I think um, – in a way, Broadway does, it doesn't have the populist appeal that it once had. Maybe that's why Time Magazine or Newsweek don't uh, review shows every week. Uh, it's it's become more of an elitist entertainment. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think that's true, but I think they're pretty desperate to recapture that you know populist vibe, which is why 
You know, in recent years, the the karaoke musical has come along, and we're we're beginning to see a lot of that. I By think, which you mean like a Mamma Mia? Or yeah, Mamma Mia, or using you, existing catalog songs. Yeah, taking yep. pop song books and uh, you know sort of shoehorning them into a story, or vice versa. And you know, we have a couple of those coming up this season alone, um, because I think uh, you know Broadway producers really want to you know capture that you know that that large audience that they always feel slipping away. Uh, I don't ne- necessarily know they're going about it in the right way, but um, but I think that's, I think, you know, they s- and also the truth is that it's, it's hard to make money on Broadway so that, uh, you know, you do sympathize with the producers. They have to, in order to turn a profit on a big musical these days, you have to run for, you know, two or three years sometimes. And, uh, you know, so I, they really have to have in mind you know, as large as possible an audience. But well, if, if, if either one of you were a, a physician, a doctor, what would you say is the health of Broadway right now? Is Broadway healthy? Does it have problems, ailments? How would you assess it in general? And please don't call it the fabulous invalid. <laughs> <laughs> How about the not-so-fabulous invalid? <laughs> it seems to be sort of, it's kind of in middle age. I don't know. It has its aches and its pains. But every once in a while, it has a surprising burst of energy that I think that astonishes people. And I think that's what brings producers back. You'll have something like a Wicked come along. And uh, despite a lot of the reviews were not overwhelming, it's turned into a great, you know, popular success. How about an Avenue Q? Would that be um, the same kind well, of I think, Well, I think Avenue Q got a little better reviews than that. Uh-huh. And it also, it's won the Tony. Oh, so, sure. So um, it's, it's, it's got a little more, uh, you know, approval. But um, Now it does. But yes. when it first came to Broadway. Well, they were pretty savvy in that they they went after a specific audience, a 20-something audience that doesn't usually go to the theater. They did, you know, I guess they sent a lot of freebie tickets at the beginning of the show when it first started, and uh, it's turned into a huge hit. I actually think Avenue Q and Wicked make, you know, a couple of good examples. I mean, Wicked is a show that is very much, you know, the old-fashioned big Broadway musical, and that has managed to succeed you know, despite not getting stellar reviews by any means. And Avenue Q is a show that you wouldn't have imagined could have been viable on Broadway because it's got a, you know, a very sort of downtown sensibility. And yet it's um, it's doing better every week. So the fact that these two shows, different as they are, are both, you know, in one season and they're both relatively, you know, they're, they're both successes is what they are. It's kind of encouraging. I mean, you know, we do sometimes tend to be pessimistic if you look at you know, the overall season simply because, you know, in art you're always going to have, you know, more misses than hits. But if you look at a couple of shows like that, I think, you know, we can be encouraged. Mike Kushara, who is the drama critic for the Associated Press, and uh, Charles Isherwood, who as of uh, right after Labor Day will be the new theater critic for the New York Times, currently as the chief theater critic for Variety. Thank you both for being on Downstate Center today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I want to mention that all of the interviews on Downstage Center are available to listen to on demand at the American Theatre Wing's website, www.americantheaterwing.org, along with more than 150 hours of free multimedia about the art, the craft, and even the business of theater. For Downstage Center, I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theatre Wing. And I'm John Von Susten from XM28 on Broadway. Thank you.